What's up, humans? Uh, you've reached the Sons of History podcast. I am Dustin Bass. And I am Alan Joaquin. And we are pleasantly surprised that you have checked us out today, um, or tonight, whenever it is that you're listening, because you can listen at any time, like when you're... Taking a bubble bath. That's right. Sipping white Zinfandel. With Michael Bolton or Kenny G. Listening to Michael Bolton or Kenny G. Unless you were so lucky lucky to be with Michael Bolton I and Kenny G. I wouldn't call that lucky. <laughs> well, you never know. That's a lot of hair to brush. Unless, you, unless we have uh, ladies listening to us, then maybe they will. Yeah, you never know. You know, my aunt is a huge fan. Now, I don't know if she still is, but I know uh, she was a huge fan of Kenny G. Like, like when I was when I was a kid growing up, like that was that was her listening pleasure, if you will. So I preferred the Michael Bolton in Office Space. I think he was pretty funny. Him and that Samir Jaja guy. Not not Naga Naga Naga's not gonna be working here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for uh, coming to the show. And before we get started. Book and movie selections, recommendations. you want to take this lead here? Certainly. For movies. Uh, it's not a movies per se. It's more of a series. AMC series, that is. TV show. TV show called Turn, Washington's Spies. Now, based on the book, Washington Spies, correct? On, well, I mean, based on several books. Um, I, I've got a... a couple of them. One of them is uh, by a man named Kilmeade, although his first name I can't remember, but he's on uh, Fox News. Uh, Brian Kilmeade, I believe is his okay. name. Um, basically, it was about the Culper Ring. A guy by the name of Benjamin Talmadge uh, ran the operation with uh, George Washington's blessings. Uh, these people were left behind on Long Island after the British captured New York City. And, uh, you know, there was a... a couple of people involved, Abraham Woodhull, um, a female by the name of Agent 355, who we still don't know who it is to this day, hmm. and uh, um, a couple of other gentlemen, Caleb uh, something or other. I, I oh, yeah, Caleb. Caleb something. Caleb the guy with the beard. Uh, yes, something like Yeah, that's the one, Caleb. Yeah, yeah. he's always in the rowboat. Something like that. Great. Yeah. I like Caleb. Uh, Robert Rogers was uh, against them. He was, he was a... Uh, a I don't want to say he was a patriot. He's actually a loyalist. He was a, a, a hero in the French and Indian War. But when the Revolutionary War came about, he decided to stick with his uh, British loyalties. So all that comes together. Uh, he was the guy that kind of outed Nathan Hale, supposedly. Oh, okay. What a jerk. So, uh, but now there are some, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood took uh, some liberties, I guess you could say. As they do, but isn't that the American way? It is the American way. So there, there are some things in the show that are a little off. You know, Abraham Woodhull in real life was not married. He did get married later on uh, towards the end of the war, but in the TV show, in real life he was a bachelor, but in the TV show he's married. He's got a son named Thomas, which I'm... Don't think he ever had a son named Thomas. I always find that bachelors are are the ones who make the biggest mark in American history. Maybe. I can't think of too many of them, but uh, I'll believe one you. comes to mind. Anyways, anyway, so anyway, so uh, yeah, so don't believe everything on the show. It's based on a true story, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of things in there where they kind of fiction. Some people get killed in the show when really they didn't, that yeah. type of thing. So 
That is the uh, movie selection. Now, for the book selection, uh, the book is called Victory in Tripoli by Joshua London. A little-known war that took place between the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 was the Barbary Pirates War. When, when we declared our independence, we lost our protection from the Royal Navy. So the... Uh, the Barbary pirates were basically the uh, the Arab states in North Africa. You had uh, you had Algeria, Tripoli, uh, Morocco, um, Tunisia. Basically, they were like, all right, they're no longer protected by the Royal Navy, so we're going to capture their ships, hold their people hostages. If they don't pay, they become slaves. And uh, Thomas Jefferson had had enough of them, and he helped build the Navy. That's the reason why we have a Navy, mm-hmm. was because of the uh, Barbary Pirates War. So thanks, pirates. Yes. So, you know, if, uh, you know that Marine song from the uh, halls 20, of... 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? No. From the okay. halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Well, the shores of Tripoli was... Hello. The, Tripoli. Yeah, <laughs> Tripoli in, in uh, Libya, which, why we have that song, why the Marines have that song. Marines did participate. There weren't that many of them, but they did participate nonetheless. Hmm. Very cool. All right. Those are your recommendations. My recommendation. Uh, so we had our interview with Alex Kershaw. So if you haven't listened to that, that is the last two episodes that came out. Uh, you can go check those out whenever you want. And he did a book on Jack London. And one of my very first books to read... Uh, that well, actually, probably my very first book to read that wasn't a kids' book was *The Call of the Wild*, um, and I actually reread that about five years ago and thought to myself, "Wow, I was reading some pretty vicious stuff as a as a tyke there." Um, but that's a really fun book to read. So if you're if your kids, I actually found an old copy in a used bookstore out in Tomball. Uh, and got that, bought it, and gave it to my nephew. Uh, I think two years ago, like two Christmases ago. So I, we were. He actually, they just moved into a new place, and so moving his stuff, I saw. I was like, oh, you still get this book. So uh, it's pretty cool. So Jack London, Call of the Wild, uh, pretty cool book. If you want to check that out. And my movie selection is one that I actually uh, finished watching this past week which was called The Highwaymen, which is a Netflix production. This movie is about uh, two men who are put on the case to go after Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Ah, No, not really. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde. So uh, these were former Texas Rangers, Frank Hamer and Manny Galt. Manny, Monty, Money. Money with an A. Money Penny? Money Penny with an A. Uh, and so this is actually, it was actually a really uh, good movie that I think it did a good job of taking the perspective of the guys who were pursuing Bonnie and Clyde. Um, and so you, you know it's all about chasing Bonnie and Clyde. You don't really see Bonnie and Clyde in the movie until the very end as far as like their faces up close, right? But throughout the movie, you get glimpses of them, you know, committing these crimes. Uh, but you typically only see maybe the side of them, uh, maybe glimpses in the rearview mirror. 
them walking uh, from behind and stuff like that. So I think it did a really good job of focusing on these two former Texas Rangers. And there was a guy that I read his review. You know, people do these audience reviews on Google. And here it, it starts off, when this review starts off really bad, 11 p.m., I'm about to sit down and watch this film. I'll report back. It's now 5 a.m. and I fell asleep. Okay, Sean, uh, this is a terrible review. Who in their right mind starts a movie or is about to start a movie at 11 p.m. at night and then expects, I'll be up. I'll stay awake. What are you, not working? You, what, are you, what are you, just you sleep during the day and then you get up and, and watch a movie and write a bad review? Sean, you should be ashamed of yourself. Wait, wait, wait. What, no. if he, what if he works during the day or something? Well, what if he does work during the day? He sh if he works during the day, then he should be like me and should be asleep like by the time, you know, midnight shows up. So, yeah, common sense will tell you. Yeah, fall asleep. Oh, I mean, he could fall be asleep. working like the shift too, you know. It's, uh, he comes home at 11. He's like, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to watch a great movie. That, that's like me coming home at a, you know, right after work. Although I do oh, fall really? asleep. Oh, really? Yeah, you, you, what are you, watching movies at 11 p.m.? Hey, honey, I'm going to start this movie at 11 p.m. I shouldn't fall asleep. Yeah, actually, I do. Exactly. But I do fall you asleep. You fall asleep. Yeah, do. It doesn't matter how good the movie is. So, yeah. Anyways, it was. I thought it was a good movie, and I thought they they did a good job of focusing more on the ones who were chasing the actual heroes mm -hmm. instead of the villains, um, instead of glorifying Bonnie and Clyde like they were glorified during the times of them actually committing all these crimes. Anyways, but, but weren't they a little harsh on Bonnie and Clyde with the way they uh, what they did to them? No. Let me tell you something. I would have emptied those clips too. That's that's me. I would have emptied. <laughs> I would have kept shooting. You know what? I'd probably still be shooting right now. Um, but whatever. What do you do? Before we get started, we do have a special guest on this show. But I had an incident on Saturday where I was going to mow my lawn, right? And you know about this. You saw the post. I sent you a picture. So I take my lawnmower. I put it out in my driveway. I don't want the grass and all that dust flying into the driveway or into the garage. So I shut my garage. I go, I, and I'm going to go through my front door. I open up the door and there's this big black snake right there. In front. I almost stepped right next to it. That would have been terrible. It was probably about a three and a half, four foot snake. What was he soliciting? Poison. Was he, was he a snake oil salesman? Yes, I choose you. Uh, that's not funny. Not a snake oil salesman? Are you? Uh, come on. Think about it, you know. <laughs> like baby oil? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. You know what? That you was know, a terrible attempt I thought it was funny. Because my was life perfect. was on the line. Your life. Yeah. It was a snake. It, it was, was a snake. Uh, slithering. Like he's going, what, five miles an hour, if that? Three miles, two miles? I don't know. I didn't, little... run. I didn't try to race him. Anyways, my you know that point, snake was there before <laughs> y'all settled the he land. He came in. He came in. That he was his. That was his land. Stolen land. That's right. Oh, jeez, Louise. Regardless, um, it really freaked me out. So I, I took a couple of pictures, sent one to you, sent one to a couple of friends, uh, my brother and my friend James. They made a couple of goofy comments saying it's a spirit um, and it's Satan. Uh, coming into your home, uh, my brother said, "Why don't you throw your broom down 
on the ground and watch. And that's a reference to the Ten Commandments and Moses, you know, his staff turning into a snake. <laughs> I was going to mention something about getting an apple, but... Uh... No, that's terrible. There's no apple trees in my yard. But you have an apple right here. Are you we not talking into an apple? Okay, that's true. Um, so I sent out the photo on Instagram and Facebook asking, hey, what is this snake? And people were, you know, you saw them. Rat snake, cotton mouth, water moccasin. Which is the same thing. Which is the same thing as a cotton mouth. King snake. No, and, it was not a king snake. Well, I got, I king, king snake was put up there. I don't know. I mean, I don't know snakes very well. Uh, so we were trying to figure out what that snake was. While I was walking around, so I shut the front door. I exit through the garage. I, I, I go get my bat because I didn't have anything. I didn't have a machete or a hoe or anything like that. Right? Well, not with me at the time. Anyways, <laughs> so I go around and this snake's freaking gone. And so I got my bat in my hand and my neighbor comes out. And this is where I got irritated. Not so much at the snake. The snake's going to do whatever it's going to do. And I go, hey, uh, do you happen to have a machete? And she's like, oh, no, I don't. And I go, okay, well, there's this big black snake on my porch, so you may want to, you know, keep an eye out. And so she's like, oh, okay. And so she starts walking over. And she asks, are you afraid of snakes? And I go, am I afraid of snakes? I said, I guess I'm afraid of venomous snakes. I, I, you know, don't want to get too close to them. She goes, oh, well, it's probably not venomous. And so she's walking over and she's like, I'm like, well, it's already gone now. Uh, so you may want to just keep your eyes open. She goes, well, uh, did it look like a water hose? I'm, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I'm like, what are you talking about? Does it I mean, look like a, a water hose? It's a snake. It yeah, I know what a water hose looks like. I got one on the front of yeah. my house. Are oh, you telling me back. this or you tell her no, that? Yeah, I wanted to tell her this. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? A water hose. Does it look like a water hose? If it would say if it was a thick black water hose, sure. Yeah, <laughs> that can take your life? Right. Yeah, that spits poison like a king cobra. That's what I think it was. Anyways, so I got a little irritated that does it did it look like a water hose? And then she goes... You know, after she says, are you afraid of snakes? I was like, you know, I gave my response. And then she goes, I'm not afraid of snakes. I'm like, what, what is this? You, what do you put on a brave face when you're facing down a snake? Why would you not be afraid of a snake? Uh, if the thing bites you, you're dead. I think anything that can kill you, you should probably be afraid of. And I go, no, it didn't have that little green stripe. I know that's a garter snake. So, no, that's not what it was. She's like, well, what color was it? I go, black. She's like, how thick was it? <laughs> <laughs> Did she really? Yeah. <laughs> I go, it was about that thick. And that, you know, that left her a little speechless. She walked off. I'm like, lady, come on. Get out of here. And then Sam calls me. Sam, as we've mentioned before, is a big fan of the show. Uh, I love Sam. Yeah. Sam's awesome. And she, you know, and right when I picked up, I was like, are you going to give me your expertise, your snake species expertise? She's like, you better believe I am. And so she let me know that that was a cotton mouth or a water moccasin. Same know. thing. Yeah. I said the same thing. <laughs> and so, so I don't know where that stupid snake is. I hope it's, hope it's gone. I didn't kill it. 
I would have just to let you people know, like, you know, how I run my business at the house. Like, I'm not going to have snakes roaming around willy-nilly. So and although you were like snakes do a lot of good, they they eat rats. Yeah, they, they eat rats. If you're if it's a rat snake, not a rat snake, you know what it's. No, gonna, if they those types of snakes eat rats. Yeah, well, if it's a rat snake, I'll let it live. If it's a if it's a water moccasin or a king cobra, like I think it is, we don't have king cobras in North America. You don't have king cobras. They're in the zoo. I had one on my porch. That was not a king cobra. It got up on its hind legs. Anyways, hey, no, all right, you take a we're going to move on and we're going to start this show with the conversation with a special guest that we have. We have a very special guest, Mark Lardis, who is an author of a large number of books. Um, we're going to let him uh, just introduce himself because this is an incredibly accomplished individual who actually lives pretty close to us. He lives out in League City. So, you know, I have uh, I have two of his books. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realize that he wrote the book on the battleship Texas. That that is one of the books I have in my collection. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, the other one, the other one was about the aircraft carriers in the First World War. Nice. All right. Well, uh, here we are. We've got Mark Lardis on the phone. Uh, how you doing today, Mark? Very good. Fantastic. Very good. How's League City right now? Um, muggy with a threat of rain. All right, perfect. Yeah, same here, out uh, just a little yeah, north of you, in in Houston. Um, so, Mark, uh, now you and I got connected. I ran across your personal website um, and thought to myself, "Man, this is going to be a great. Um, this would be a great time to to reach out." And I think I had told you that I was in in the middle of a John Paul Jones. Uh, documentary and uh, not a documentary but a biography um, and so it was it was I guess sort of timely that you know I ran across your name because you are really big into just um, the history of, uh, of, of the, the naval history of, of America's Navy um, and you're really big into naval architecture and maritime events um, just let the listeners you know sort of know about your experience with you know, the maritime history, naval architecture. Okay. Um, I, I guess the, you could say that the interest in maritime history um, was sort of born in me. My grandfather immigrated to, my father's father immigrated to this country from Greece. And when he was a child, he grew up on a sailing bark that his family owned. Uh, for those that don't know what that is. It's a three-masted ship, and it has square rig sails on the, on the front two masts and four and aft um, sails on the, on the after mast. And if you go down to Galveston and you take a look at the Alyssa, that's a bark rig. So my grandfather grew up on a sailing ship like that. And when I was young, he'd tell me stories about life on those on that ship. So I was interested in sailing ships from early on. Uh, my dad also made model sailing ships. I do too. And when I got older, I was looking for something in engineering. And I grew up in a town called Ann Arbor, and there's a university there, <laughs> and. They were then one of four or 
five universities that offered naval architecture and marine engineering. So I took that, and because I figured there's always a demand for naval architects, and there is, except when I got out of college, the shuttle program was ramping up. So I ended up interviewing by accident with Lockheed, and they were looking for people to do vibration analysis on the shuttle. And they were really looking for people to do work because 10 years earlier, they'd been the big aerospace bust, and a lot of people were reluctant to work for NASA in 1978-79. But for me, it sounded like an adventure, and Houston back then had a big offshore platform industry. So I figured, oh, I'll come down, I'll work on the shuttle program for three or four years, and then I'll switch to the offshore industry and have everyone call me a rocket scientist because right. I worked at NASA for three or four years. Ended up staying there for close to 30 years. Um, and moved from vibration analysis to uh, space navigation. And I worked as a real-time shuttle navigator for four years, which is really cool because I could go back to my hometown and they'd say, what are you doing? I said, oh, I navigate the shuttle. And they'd look at me, my high school friends would look at me really strange and say, I didn't know you were an astronaut. Of course, the navigators, like all the other excess baggage, were left on the ground. So, but it was fun. I could I could tell that story to all the jocks from high school. I'd be telling the exact truth, and you know, it impressed them. Well, that's that's amazing, man. Uh, you you actually wrote a book, and I'm assuming this is on your experience. Uh, your personal experience with NASA, it's uh, Space Shuttle Launch System, 1972 to 2004. Um, right. I assume that's about your personal time with NASA. What is that What is that book about? Actually, that book is about the Space Shuttle. Um, that's actually the second book that I wrote for Osprey. Uh, uh, the first book was one about American, the American... Uh, 44-gun frigates, and my editor from Osprey knew that I had worked in the, in the space program, and Osprey wanted to do a book about the shuttle, and the whole thing about Osprey is they do military titles, Right. so I wrote a book about the shuttle's history with the Air Force and the, the, the blue shuttles. The irony is, I wrote that during the period I wasn't working for NASA, um, and ended up going back to NASA after the dot-com bust in 2001, and in retrospect, I'm not sure I would have written that book if I knew I was going to be working for a NASA contractor, but I'd already signed the contract and I was already working on it. At when I went back and started working for Boeing again. Awesome. Um, so 
you've written a number of books, uh, and I think your your specialty is aside from from NASA um, about uh, naval history and about boats in general. Now you still do uh, model making, correct? Yes. Yes. All right. About how many how many models? I mean, do you do that? It's it's a hobby. I mean, how long does it take you to typically knock one of those out? Well, it takes me a long time to build one model ship because I'm not doing I'm not building it to just churn out models. Mm-hmm. And when I build a model ship, I'll do things like add a crew to it and turn it into a diorama. And it's it's more a effort to get into working something, working with something that's uh, wood and plastic. Um, that's three-dimensional rather than working with computers or writing. Um, for a long time, I was making cardstock models during my lunch break just so I could do something with my hands and didn't end up staring endlessly into a computer screen. Right. Now, you've uh, speaking of Osprey Publishing, um, I, I'm going to give a guess. You've written... Um, according to their website, uh, ospreypublishing.com, uh, you've written about 26 books. Am I accurate on that, or are there, there are more? I, all I know is you've written a ton of books. At least 26. I've got three or four more under contract. Um, later this year, I'm supposed to write one about the duels between uh, British galleons and Spanish galleons in the Elizabethan era. I'm also supposed to do one about destroyer escorts, and one of the ships that will be featured in that is the USS Stewart, which is in Galveston um, as a museum ship. Um, I'm also doing one on the last half of the Battle of the Atlantic with the focus on the air portion of that. I've got two two more that I that are going to be coming out in the near future. Uh, one of them about the uh, naval campaign that ended with the glorious 1st of June in 1793. And that represented Britain's best chance to end the French Revolution um, in in 1794. I'm sorry, the, the campaign was fought in, 19, in 1794. Uh, and the French were bringing a massive grain convoy from the United States to France because there had been crop failures in western France due to the civil war that was going on there. So if the revolutionaries didn't get the food to France, the revolution would have collapsed. And part of the fun in, in, in writing that book was I, I did some maps where I showed how close the two fleets came. And in one case, the British and French naval fleets passed literally within three or 400 yards of each other in a thick fog and missed each other. And the grain fleet actually 
came within sight of the British fleet, the British battle fleet, but the French battle fleet was between the British and the convoy, and the British were unaware that the convoy was that close. I've got some illustrations that show exactly how close the two sides came and just missed each other. It was like playing an enormous game of blind man's bluff, because this is an era before you have radar, before you have radio, and basically your intelligence when you're at sea is limited to the eyeballs of the sailors that are up in the lookout posts. So you can maybe see 15 miles if it isn't hazy. It's part of Part of the fun about writing about the sailing era is there are assumptions that we make that people miss today. For example, in an era before electricity, it gets really dark at night. Um, That's how uh, Stephen Decatur was able to sail into uh, Tripoli Harbor, set the frigate Philadelphia, which had been captured by the Barbary pirates, he set that on fire. And then he left the harbor, and nobody was aware that there was an American force in the harbor until the men gave three hearty cheers, (laughs) at which point every gun in the harbor opens up because they know that there's an enemy in the harbor, but they don't know where. So as soon as that happened, the Americans became very quiet and were able to sneak out. Um, Another thing that I discovered or realized as I was writing one of the books on frigate duels was we didn't have time zones back then. And what difference does that make? Well, noon today isn't what noon was back then. Back then, noon was when the sun was at the highest point during the day. Noon in Houston, depending on whether we're in daylight savings time or standard time, is anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and 30 minutes away from true noon. And some of the battles only made sense after I realized, oh, I've got to figure out what local noon is. And that bit of research involved finding um, finding the length of the day, how many hours of daylight there was, and then dividing that by two, and that would give you sunrise and sunset for the sailors of the era. So, you know, you can really go down a rabbit hole if you just blindly use, um, say, the the current astronomical almanac, which gives sunrise and sunset times. Interesting. They're skewed because we use standard time zones. Well, and we use standard time zones because they make sense if you've got railroads. You know, thing, things like that are, are what make writing about history fun. I was going to ask you, since you're into uh, naval warfare, uh, what are your thoughts on a subject that really doesn't get much uh, mention, which is the uh, quasi-war with France? And do you think uh, there's enough interest that writing a book on it would be profitable? Yes, uh, actually. 
I have written some about that. I did that with the American Light Frigates book because that some of the battles that I described were fought during that war. Um, I have um, pitched that and probably will will resurface it again. But yeah, um, that was that. There have been several books written about the Quasi War, um, and um, I can't remember them off the top of my head right now. Uh, I do know that back in the fifties, Fletcher Pratt wrote a book about it. Although that's more, he was writing more for entertainment than anything else. Fletcher Pratt was also, in addition to being a historian, a science fiction writer of the era. Hmm. So there, there has been some of that. Part of what got me interested in the Federal Navy was when I was on a business trip to Goddard Space Flight Center and went into a uh, used bookstore there and found volume one of the um, seven-volume series that the United States Navy published about the quasi-war that gave information about, you know, the crews, the ships, things like that. Although, you know, that's, you really have to be into history to to, uh, find those books interesting. Now, obviously, uh, your, I guess your your primary interest is in uh, in the Navy, um, and you know I had mentioned the the father of the American Navy, John Paul Jones, a second ago. But I know we wanted to have a discussion with you about the father of America, um, and you have written a book on George Washington, and I'd like for us to jump right into that now. Um, what is what is your book about? And it looks like Osprey does a number of these books on. Uh, on particular historical figures in American history um, that focus, or just in history in general, that focus on, I believe it's like le- leadership, conflict, and strategy. But what is your what is your book about with George okay. Washington? It is a series about military commanders. So this isn't a full biography of George Washington. It's a biography about him as a general. Um, and it, it essentially looks at his background, what was his training, um, how did he serve as a junior officer, what was the hour of decision where he took command of a major army. This is, this is the whole series. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happens after that big campaign. And in the case of Washington, it was like the series was designed for Washington because, um, you know, Washington is one of the most fascinating figures in history, not just American history, but he was probably one of the most influential um, individuals in the second millennium. You know, from uh, 10,000 to 2,000. Um, the, in the opening of the book, 
I compare Washington to both Napoleon and Frederick the Great. And if you measure by results, Washington was a more significant figure than either of those because Frederick the Great fought a lot of battles, bigger battles than Washington, and pretty much ended up with the same quarters that he had shortly after he became king of Prussia. And Napoleon took France, which was one of the major world powers in seventeen in the in the 1700s and set it on a trajectory where it ends up as a third-rate power today, whereas Washington uh, takes a number of, of states pretty much on the fringe of civilization and puts them on a trajectory to be the dominant power in the world uh, within really 150 years, 100 years of the American Revolution. So, you know, Washington's real strength was the ability uh, was the ability to think strategically. More important than that, once he had won, he knew enough to walk away from the table. There are only two major figures from the age of revolution that successfully transitioned to a civilian government that stepped down from command of the army and retired to to, uh, private life and then let a democracy or or rather a republic form. The the thing about Washington is he really is uh, worth all the hype and in some ways, it's almost like he's too good to be true. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you look at Napoleon, you look at Simon Bolivar, you look at what's happened in Mexico, and there's no reason that those nations could not have developed as successfully as the United States. But in all of those cases, the leaders were more interested in power for themselves than in the good of their country. The other fascinating thing about Washington is he was entirely self-taught. He had an eighth grade education, and yet he managed to master surveying, which when he was growing up was the equivalent of being a dot-com guru. That was the high tech of the era. Mm -hmm. Then he manages to pretty much um, bluster his way into command of the Virginia Regiment. And he ends up kicking off, because of his inexperience, he ends up starting uh, the Seven Years' War. Just blunders into it. We know of that war as the French and Indian Wars, but it ended up becoming either the second or maybe the third worldwide conflict. And it really started because an inexperienced George Washington um, managed to ambush a 
uh, diplomatic party and then get himself captured. But the thing is that if George Washington made every mistake possible, his genius was he only made every mistake once. Hmm. The man was a faster learner than I, than anyone else I know of. By the end of the Seven Years' War, he was probably the most experienced American regimental commander, colonial regimental commander, in North America. Uh, British, his superior, uh, wanted him to take a British commission, and Washington actually applied for it, but was turned down because he was a colonial and he had no training. And although he managed to pick up how the the basics of logistics, training, tactics, really on his own, as far as the British Army was concerned, that didn't count. You know, then Washington goes home. Um, he is one of the few planters to attempt to make himself self-sufficient. And while everyone else is growing cotton, I mean, not cotton, tobacco, Washington is growing wheat and selling that to the other planters. So he's one of the few planters that's actually making money. And when the American Revolution comes along, um, he is in the Continental Congress, and he comes in every day wearing his the, the uniform of the colonel of the Virginia Regiment, because he still thought of himself as Colonel Washington. And when things blew up in Boston, and the Continental Congress organized the Continental Army, they needed a general from someplace other than New England to show that it was a united force. And they chose Washington, even though there were some other people around, such as Horatio Gates and Lee, who had been in the British Army. Um, the, the funny thing is that Washington was in many ways better qualified than them to serve as a supreme commander because he had, because of the experience he developed in logistics and in training when he was commanding the Virginia Regiment at the end of the French and Indian Wars, whereas they would have just been line officers. So the, we, the United States, the, 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 the colonists get really lucky because they managed to nail the, the individual that's probably best suited to run the overall army. And more than that, he ends up losing a lot of his battles. But one of the key things that he discovers is that it's not what territory you hold. As long as he can keep his army intact, the British can't win the war. They have to destroy his army. And that really threw out a lot of the uh, tactical rules that the European armies had been fighting by. And both um, Gates and Lee end up 
themselves in trouble because they're trying to hold geographic positions. Uh, a good example of what I'm talking about would be Washington's raids at Trenton and um, Princeton. At that point, his army is down and out. It's going to disappear in a few weeks. So he talks the men into launching an assault at a Hessen regiment that's encamped at Trenton. And he defeats them. Now, the reason that's significant is the British were essentially running counterinsurgency at that point. And that means that you break up your army into small garrisons and you get control of the rebels. And it's, it's a strategy that works. But the thing is, by taking out one of the garrisons, uh, Washington forced the British to, instead of having four garrisons of a thousand soldiers each, having one garrison with 4,000 soldiers because they knew he couldn't ambush that. But that meant that the British are now controlling one quarter of the territory they had been before the raid. When you, you said that uh, General Washington learned from his mistakes and didn't uh, repeat them, correct? He learned from them. He did have some bad habits that he never broke himself of. Uh -huh. He was always... Uh, he always tended to go for a plan that was more complicated than it needed to be. Uh, he got better at it. If you look at the Battle of Long Island, it was an extremely complicated plan that fell apart when he made contact with the enemy. Uh, but by Monmouth, he had a fairly straightforward plan. Um, he had a very, very elaborate plan for capturing Boston, which included a coordinated attack by sledges over the ice of the Back Bay. But in order to do that, he needed to put cannons on Dorchester Heights. What he didn't realize, because he was so inexperienced, is once he had cannons on Dorchester Heights, the British couldn't hold Boston and they evacuated it. So he was seen as a genius because of that. But fortunate, and that was fortunate, because if he tried the intricate coordinated attack on the British garrison across the Back Bay, it would have been a disaster. So he was he was lucky, but he did learn from his mistakes, and he learned from them very quickly. And you know, an example of that is simply the realization that the army was more important holding any particular piece of, of territory. What, what I would like to know, and uh, since you've done your research, if Washington was sitting in, in front of me, I would ask him, why did you allow um, William Howe to outflank you so many times? Yep. Um, the answer he would give you is, if, if he were completely honest, is, well, I think I screwed up. Okay. <laughs> uh, at, at, at White Plains, he didn't realize that he was being flanked. Actually, he didn't at Brandywine either. That's a little bit more excusable because Brandywine has a lot of woods, 
and Washington was ill-served by some of his subordinates who were not reporting what was going on. And again, we're talking about an era where, um, you know, messages go by the speed of the courier, and in a battlefield, there's a lot of noise as well. So is that shooting that you hear on the other side of the woods skirmishers, or is that the whole British Army coming after you? Um, and in, in the case at Brandywine, it was, oh, it's the whole British Army. Um, in Long Island, that was really and completely inexperienced. He had no idea um, of the capabilities of the British Army because he hadn't faced them in the field before. And on top of that, uh, several regiments just turned and ran, allowing the British to flank him. They were, the, the Continental Army was extremely lucky in escaping from the Long Island. And again, it, it was because of fog. Now, your, your book, if somebody, uh, if, you know, somebody goes on the website and looks at the brief description on your book on George Washington, it says that uh, he may be one of the most underrated commanders or history's, uh, uh, one of history's most underrated commanders. Why do you think that he is uh, underrated? What, what, what makes you think that? Part of the reason is that Washington won so few battles. Um, he lost a lot more battles than he won, whereas commanders like Napoleon and Frederick the Great ended up winning a lot of battles. But what ends up happening with those two is it doesn't matter how many battles they win because they aren't they think that the way you win a war is to win battles. And it really isn't. The way you win the war is by keeping your enemy from winning it and getting them to withdraw. So Frederick the Great at one point is has most of Prussia overrun. And the only thing that saves him is the Russian Serena dies, and her son is a fan of Frederick the Great and withdraws from the coalition. But at the end of the war, the Prussian borders are the same as they were at the end of the War of Austrian Succession. If you look at Bonaparte, he's even worse because he manages to beat France. I mean, he, he manages to beat Austria, Russia, and Prussia, chases the British off the European continent, but he isn't satisfied with what he has. He keeps going back and fighting for more until he finally ends up losing everything. Um, Washington was willing to fight one war, win, and then walk away from it wasn't interested in getting more glory. I think and, if, uh, if people read maybe uh, biographies um, on Washington and then maybe uh, read a biography on Napoleon, 
I think, uh, what are your thoughts on, like, I, I think people will really be able to see uh, arrogance on, on one side. Um, and Napoleon became uh, like very arrogant on his ability to command the army and his ability to uh, come up with strategy and tactics, whereas Washington uh, seemed to be very different. And what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Part of it, part of it is a matter of legitimacy. Um, Napoleon was pretty much of a usurper, and he was in kind of the same position that Santa Ana de Lupes of, of Mexico was in, which is he's only as good as his last victory, and he keep, needs to keep winning victories. The real problem with a lot of these guys is what I call the smartest man in the room syndrome. And that's that both, you know, most of these generals really are the smartest men in the room because otherwise they wouldn't rise to power in a situation like a revolution. But the problem is it doesn't matter how smart you are. Um, there, you're going to run into situations where you've got inadequate information when Washington would be faced with a situation like that, he wouldn't blindly charge forward because he didn't think he was the smartest man in the room and he thought maybe he better get somebody else's advice. I mean, once he decided, he was pretty decisive, but he wasn't willing to assume that he had all the answers, whereas Napoleon, Frederick the Great, and a lot of the other leaders did feel like they had all of the answers. Do you think that uh, really helped his ability to delegate uh, his power or delegate powers to his other generals like uh, Knox and Green? And, you know, Alan and I were discussing earlier on how many uh, foreign military officers came in to take major roles like Lafayette, von Steuben, uh, Pulaski, and DeKalb. Uh, how does, what kind of testament is that to, to Washington's ability to delegate and also what, what should current military leaders and really, uh, leaders in general, uh, take from that? Well, Washington was a good judge of character, particularly by the middle to the end of the American revolution. Washington looked for people that could produce results. And he was a, a person that reinforced success instead of reinforcing failure. You know, you lose Charleston, okay, get out of Charleston and let the British have it. Um, on the other hand, oh, we've got the British trapped in Yorktown, let's go ahead and capture that. That, that was one of his strengths. But a lot of it was he knew who the good generals were and who the bad generals were. He knew that Horatio Gates, despite his earlier victory at Saratoga, really wasn't that good a general, and he sent him south very reluctantly and largely due to pressure from the Continental Congress. Um, he was... Washington was aware that Saratoga was largely won by Benedict Arnold, 
and um, actually he was grooming Arnold for independent command, but I think by that time Arnold had decided to switch sides. Um, but, you know, Washington was aware of, of the uh, competence of people like Knox with artillery, um, Nathaniel Green, and you notice he's the one that Washington sends south once Washington is allowed to pick the general to command in the south. Um, so he was very good at that. Um, he was also aware that von Steuben probably wasn't a baron. He didn't care because von Steuben could discipline his troops and teach them how to fight in, a, in an open field. And Washington realized that ambush tactics weren't sufficient. He had to build an army that could face the British on an open field and trade uh, volley for volley the way they did at Monmouth. Um, so he was willing to go along with Steuben's pretensions of being a noble because von Steuben gave Washington what Washington badly needed, a drill master. Um, he knew that he could trust Anthony Wayne. He knew that he could trust Nathaniel Green. And he knew that because he'd watched them earlier in the war. So he was very good at delegating. As you, you mentioned a second ago, he was able to read people uh, pretty well. Uh, and I think history, or at least history in general, where you know we get a lot of skimmed over history, where people pinpoint the Benedict Arnold situation, but they don't really address the fact that um, George Washington was able to pinpoint that uh, Gates and Charles Lee were a problem, along with Thomas Conway. Um, how, how fair do you think that is, that it sort of gets skimmed over, but everybody, because of what Benedict Arnold did and, you know, the treason, people may look at the Benedict Arnold treason um, as a failure for Washington to pinpoint, uh, hey, this is, you know, a, a bad apple. And I think people think of Benedict Arnold as a bad apple from the start, people who don't really haven't read much on the the steps or the process of what sort of pushed Arnold to become treasonous. Um, and they don't really know much about Horatio Gates and Conway and, and Lee. The so, funny yeah. thing about Washington and Arnold is that both men were treated in a very similar manner they were both treated extremely shabbily, um, but Washington was able to rise above that and ignore the slights, but Arnold was not. And Arnold kind of let his, I, I guess you could say that in some ways, Arnold was a 17th century snowflake tended to melt under heat. Um, he was a brilliant general. Even with the British, he was brilliant. Uh, Washington was a brilliant general, too. 
but Washington was able to rise above the insults, and even when he was quite literally offered the opportunity to step into Cromwell's role uh, near the end of the revolution and set himself up as Lord Protector of the United States or even King George Washington, he walked away from it. And I think at least part of the reason that he walked away from it was his realization that once he did that, you had to be right every time. And Washington knew that he was incapable of, of batting a thousand. Um, and in fact, that nobody is capable of making the right decision every time. But once you become a usurper, once you establish that your authority is based only on force, then you have to win every time. And had Washington accepted the offer of the army at Newbury, New York, and overthrown the um, Continental Congress, we would have ended up very much like what happened in South America 30 and 40 years later, when the individual generals decided they were smarter than everyone else. And we would have tumbled into that type of uh, merry-go-round government where, or wheel of fortune government, where one usurper takes over um, when the previous one fails. Now, I, uh, I, uh, you mentioned something about how George Washington handled uh, people that were trying to treat him the way they treated Benedict Arnold. With uh, Congress, many in Congress, like Samuel Adams, um, supporting the Conway Cabal, and I believe John Adams can be kind of thrown in there because John Adams thought uh, that there was too much of a cult of personality worship towards Washington. What do you think Washington's view was when John Adams became his vice president? Did he really, I mean, did he agree to... You know that saying uh, about keep your friends close but your enemies closer? I mean, what are your thoughts on his relationship with John Adams? That's a good question. Um, one thing is that, that victory tends to fix a lot of hurts. The other thing is the view of the presidency was very different in 1788 than it is today. Um, the executive branch was seen as weaker than the legislative branch, and the judiciary was actually supposed to be the weakest of the three branches of the government. Um, the, the, the whole idea of co-equal branches didn't exist until the 20th century. Um, Washington basically knew that he didn't need to deal with the vice president, except under certain very limited circumstances. And at that time, the president and vice president were elected independently of each other. So you know, it'd be kind of like you have, um, you know, Mitch McConnell and 
Um, uh, oh, come on. Uh, uh, Schumer? Yeah, Chuck Schumer. So you've got Mitch McConnell as president and Chuck Schumer as vice president. Or switch those around. Because that's what the vice presidents, that's the relationship the president and vice president had at that time. So it was nothing like we have today where, you know, Pence... You know, Pence uh, did a lot. Pence does a lot with Trump. Biden did a lot with Obama. Um, and uh, and I forgot his name. Uh, Bush and his uh, vice president uh, Cheney. Cheney, and they they work as a you know to consult each other to help each other out. But uh, but in those days, John Adams really didn't do much with Washington. Is that is that correct? I really don't think so. Um, it's as I said. Um, they were kind of figuring out what this whole republic thing was as they went along. As they went along, um, you know, this was the first time a nation attempted to run itself in a decentralized representative fashion. Um, you know, England was a lot more centralized. Um, certainly the Roman Republic, which is where they drew a lot of the basis for the Constitution, was a lot more centralized than the American Republic. And, you know, back then, you didn't say the, you didn't say the United States, you said these United States with the view that each state was a sovereign nation. And that, that's a different approach than we've got today. Well, we uh, we just actually shot our um, our third episode, Mark. Uh, so we do a YouTube series, and it's uh, so it's, we're doing our um, work on the American Revolution. So we actually just uh, shot our third episode, which is about the Revolutionary War in general, um, and talking about battles. Uh, we, you know. I, I play the role of George Washington, so I think this conversation is pretty timely for the, our show, The Sons of History, and um, so we th want to thank you for taking the moment to discuss George Washington in detail, because I think it's it's a figure that we, as, as Americans, never need to lose sight of, um, even though it's been, you know, now a couple of hundred years. Um, and but we never need to lose sight of the importance of George Washington and the decisions that he made. And one of the those decisions uh, that you were talking about was stepping aside, not becoming uh, king of America, and not following the route that sort of took place in the French Revolution, and also, like you said, in South America, where the generals start, you know, taking over. Uh, and I think that his decision, and you sort of reference this at the very beginning of, of the show was his decisions have impacted how we've moved forward as a nation. And I think that's always been the case where generals uh, in our military sort of step aside uh, from that quote-unquote executive power position. Um, the thing I found fascinating about writing this book, particularly since the British publisher how popular George Washington is in Britain. He's their favorite enemy. <laughs> if they had to lose to anyone, 
boy, they might as well lose to the best. Right. So, Mark, uh, tell our tell our listeners where they can actually find you and where they can um, get your books, how they can go about uh, getting those. Okay. Um, my website is www.marklardis.com, um, and it's basically a way for people to contact me. My books are available through the publishers, either um, Osprey, which is at ospreypublishing.com, or at Arcadia Books, which is arcadiapublishing.com, and they're certainly available through Amazon or Barnes & Noble if people want to get them online. Awesome. All right, Mark, uh, thank you so much, man. This has been a really great conversation to have. Uh, we want to thank you very much, uh, Alan and I, uh, for jumping in on the show. And, um, yeah, we hope to have you on the show uh, in the future, man. And, and I, wanted to say, I wanted to say that uh, I think that this, this should be a very interesting subject, uh, this book, because I've always uh, – I never considered Washington to be the best tactician, but – for me, Washington was not the best general, but he was the best man to have as the commander-in-chief. Again, his real strength was he was able to focus in on what was necessary to win. And in my opinion, he did that better than just about anybody else. And that, that was his real strength. And, and it's, it's what you were saying, if, if uh, Benedict Arnold or Horatio Gates or Charles Lee was the commander-in-chief at the end of the war, I think this country would look far different than what it is today. You know, all, I hate to say it, but all you have to do is look at what's going on in Venezuela today. Hmm. And I could imagine a very similar scenario, the United States following a similar course from, say, 1785 to uh, 1825. We got very lucky. Yeah, very indeed. Indeed. Well, thanks again, Mark, uh, and we hope you had a good time on the show, man. And uh, thanks again for uh, taking the time to talk with us. And listeners, uh, go check out Mark's books on ArcadiaPublishing.com and on OspreyPublishing.com. He's got... Tons of books, tons of reading material there, um, and there are a lot of fun. It's got some uh, great illustrations in there as well, so definitely something that you'll enjoy reading. So, thanks again, Mark. Okay, glad, glad to be on. All right, man. Take care. All right, listeners. Well, we hope that you guys enjoyed that conversation um, with Mark Lardis. Uh, great conversation about George Washington and some of the stuff that we discussed before we got into the George Washington bit. Um, and I think that's, uh, he's done a lot of, uh, written a lot of books, a lot about a lot of stuff that I myself would be interested in knowing about. Um, so yeah, definitely, uh, we had discussed about possibly getting him as a regular guest on the show. Uh, what did you think about the interview? I, I, I love the interview. I, you know, I'll tell you, I was quite impressed with his collection of books. I knew of some of them. I did not know uh, as many as he had. And, you know, like I had mentioned, um, I read one of his books on the Battleship Texas, and I had no idea that that was his yeah. until I read um, all the books that he had. And I, I, I do like his take on uh, George Washington, 
because I've, I've had my complaints, as well as everybody in history, that mm-hmm. he wasn't the best tactician uh, general in the world, but the man knew how to win a war. He knew that fighting the uh, British army, the most powerful army in the world, would have been uh, suicide. And what he would do is, he, he, he was defeated in battle, but he wasn't annihilated in mm-hmm. battle. So he would know that he was getting his butt whooped, but he would pull back mm-hmm. so that Howe or Clinton, well, he never really faced Clinton per se until Monmouth, but Howe was his big adversary, uh, William Howe at, mm-hmm. at the beginning. And uh, William Howe had his number. He always found a way to defeat them, always outflanked them. But Washington always found a way to get out. And, uh, you know, like the best example is when his men were trapped after the Battle of Long Island, they were trapped on Brooklyn Heights. Mm-hmm. And he evacuated all his men across the East River into Manhattan. And if had it not been for that fog that rolled in, um, he would have lost quite a few people. Yeah. But um, but he always he he just uh, kept everything together. He knew as uh, as Mr. Mark Lardis mentioned, he knew who his good generals were. He did not like Horatio Gates. Mm-hmm. Didn't want Gates to uh, run the Southern Command, but reluctantly he allowed it. Uh, Gates hanged himself at Camden, and when that Not happened, literally. Hmm, well, you know what I mean. <laughs> but after after uh, Gates was defeated at Camden, then he was able to bring in his own man, which was Nathaniel Green. And uh, with Nathaniel Green and Daniel Morgan down in the South, they were able to uh, force the Battle of Yorktown, and that's what uh, ended the uh, uh, major military operations in the United States. Well, I, I had a good time talking to Mark and got a, you know, it's a, a ton of information there, a ton of information. Uh, and I think Mark is going to be a, a great asset to the show um, and just, you know, bring in a lot of information that a lot of people don't know, including, uh, well, I know, including myself, definitely. Um, so he's going to, his specialty, like we were mentioned a number of times, naval architecture and a whole, you know, maritime engineering and just navy in general uh, and i think that's going to be some fun topics moving forward so um all right ladies and gentlemen that's the end of our show but before we finish up we always end with the scripture and that scripture is proverbs 16 and 7 which is interesting because mark had mentioned that george washington um, is britain's favorite enemy uh, so they're like, hey, he said, you have to lose to somebody, might as well lose to the best. And this scripture says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So uh, I think that's pretty descriptive of our good man, father of America, George Washington. All right, that's it. Uh, Alan, as you sit there so succulently, um, where can they find us? YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You know, I think we've got to get rid of this Twitter account. I am never on that thing. I'm not either. The only, the only thing that gets posted on there is whatever I put through Instagram. Not a lot of interaction. Then again, but, people may be interacting. I have no idea. So... But we also, uh, we have our own website. Yes, we do. www.thesonsofhistory.com. 
That's right. And if you want to, you can go check out some of our episodes that are already up from the American Revolution season that we're working on. Just shot episode three the other day. Uh, We're working on uh, getting that out. And when I say we are working on getting that out, it is I am working on getting that out. And you are... I'm anticipating it. And I'm yeah, there you preparing. go. <laughs> That's right. You're preparing to go. Uh, I'm going to go on a trip, and uh, I don't want to mention just yet where, but uh, it'll definitely be for the benefit of the Sons of History. That's right. And we also have some military interviews on our website under the tab, Military Interviews. So, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. We will talk to you later. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks.